1: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies.
4: And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 122. Today on the show, we're joined by Todd Mead, who's going to share with us how he's managed to kill big mature bucks all the way from the Big Woods Mountains of New York to the public lands of the Midwest all right welcome to the wired to hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka gear and today We're joined by Todd Mead, a hunter hailing from the great state of New York, and Todd brings some really interesting perspectives to the table as a deer hunter, as he's someone who has successfully hunted whitetails in some wildly different situations. He's had success both in the big woods, mountainous terrain of New York's Adirondack Mountains and the flat agricultural lands of the Midwest, and he's done it all DIY and almost exclusively on public land as well. So. Obviously this guy knows something about hunting whitetails and I think we all can learn a thing or two from him. So with that said, today I'm going to grill Todd all about his experiences in both of these different types of situations. We're going to dive deep into what it's like to hunt in the big woods or mountainous situations like you might find in the northeast and exactly how to find and kill mature bucks in those areas. And then we're also going to explore how Todd's been able to have equally as impressive success on his cross-country whitetail trips to the Midwest and public land situations like that. So all in all, it's going to be a very interesting conversation, and I think a perfect way to kick off October. But before we get tied on the line, we need to do two quick things. First, this is a little, little bit kind of special here. Earlier this week, October 4th marked the three-year anniversary of the day that I quit my full-time job and went 100% in on Wired to Hunt. Three years. Three years. It's uh it's pretty hard to believe that this much time's passed and that I've actually been able to do this for that long without the whole thing crashing in around me. But but remarkably I've been blessed with this incredible three year journey so far. And to be honest, you know, it was it was scary as hell when I quit my job back in thirteen. And many of you know that story, but I had a great job with a big tech company and life was solid and safe and going as planned, but but that kind of life and job it it wasn't where my heart was. And I knew that that year in 2013, I finally, I had to make that decision. I had to finally decide to chase that dream, to, to listen to my heart, to wave goodbye to that safe, solid, secure, and instead embrace the risk and the opportunity of doing what I love for a living. And now here we are three years later, and I think, you know, by far the biggest reason why this whole thing is still going, it's because of you guys. It's because Wired Hunt readers and viewers and listeners have allowed me to share my stories and my failures and my lessons learned and you've stuck with me through it all you've you've listened to the podcast and you share the articles you've given me feedback uh, you've given props to the companies that have helped us and so so much more and it's because of you that I'm getting to enjoy this three-year anniversary today so I just want to say thank you thank you thank you thank you I can't say it enough but I hope in some small way you can realize just how appreciative I am and how much the Wired Hunt community, really, you all mean to me. You guys are the best. I appreciate you and thank you. Now, to the second thing we need to do before calling Todd, we need to thank another person, well, not person, a company in this case, that being Sick Gear, for sponsoring this podcast. They were actually the very first company ever to support Wired Hunt. Way back in, I think, 2010, they started off. And they've really been instrumental in keeping this podcast and website afloat. So, as we do every week, we've got a Sitka story to share. And if you recall, in last week's episode, we began with a story from Sitka employee Alex Tannenbaum, who was relaying the kind of experience of one of his of his very first whitetail hunts. And when we left off, he was in the midst of a very close
5: encounter that left him with some interesting lessons learned about 35 yards out they did they kind of you know made a turn um it might have been because i made some noise it's hard to say and uh so i drew and uh, and then they were all three of them looking like straight at me and i'm like oh Jeez. And uh, and I still even haven't haven't even like made a pick. Like which one should I shoot? You know, like I haven't even thought that far ahead. I'm just like, I'm drawn and I got deer. And I'm like, uh, that one. And uh, and you know, put my pin on and and like like nothing feels good about this shot. Like like not a single thing. Like I, I'm just like I'm shaking. I'm uh I just I got nothing and but I didn't want to let down because for some reason that felt like I would be like, I don't know. I, I think I was just still a pretty new hunter and like that idea of letting down when I had an opportunity to shoot like just didn't it it just seemed like maybe that wasn't like a like a I don't know a virtuous thing to do. Um, you know that wasn't like the that wasn't what a real hunter would do, and uh, so instead, um, I I raised my bow up like way the heck over him and just touched off, um, and just shot way over their backs, and because uh, then I could say, oh yeah, it was a clean miss, um, you know, and uh, so that was, you know, in in that like kind of you know flood of totally illogical thinking and and emotional thinking that was that was what I did um so 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 knowing what
4: you know now would you have done anything differently in that situation
5: yeah I mean I guess looking back at it if I could have changed the outcome um if I could have done something differently like knowing what I know now but you know the me of back then standing in that stand um i think i'd have just counseled that uh, that alex of years ago to to have like the 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 comfort uh and the self-assurance that like letting down uh was okay that i didn't need to let an arrow go to make the story better or to make to to have to to sound more impressive to to other people um you know that I, that really like to have more confidence in in uh in my personal ethic um that's that's what i would say to to that kid who was standing in that stand that that morning
4: And that right there, my friends, was a Sitka story. If you'd like to learn more about Sitka Gear's technical hunting apparel, you can visit sitkagear.com. And now, let's get back to the show and give Todd Mead a call. All right, now with us on the line is Todd Mead. Welcome to the show, Todd.
0: Uh, Thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate you uh, asking me to be a guest on your show.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to chat. It's been a little while. We... We actually, well, heck, I don't know when I first started hearing about you, maybe through social media or something, Todd. But as you know, we got to chat quite a bit this spring uh, when we were working. I was working on a story for a magazine where we actually featured you in that, and I got to learn a lot about how you're hunting and the kind of success you're having. And uh, to be honest, I was was very impressed. So I knew eventually we had to get you on here and share what you're doing with the audience. So I'm excited to do that now. Um, But I suppose before we dig into the the hows and the what's of your hunting can you just tell us a little bit about your background as a hunter and kind of how you got to where you are today sure you bet
0: uh right now i'm 47 years old and i live in what they call the adirondack park of upstate new york and it's approximately five hours from new york city and an hour and a half south of montreal canada and it's a pretty mountainous region. Most people that are familiar with New York don't know that New York has mountains. And the Adirondack Park is uh, its approximately 6 million acres, and about 52% of that is privately owned. Hmm. So the other 48% is uh, open to the public for hunting, outdoor activities, et cetera. Uh, in the area in the Adirondack Park, it's it was declared forever wild by Teddy Roosevelt, and uh, he decided that you could never have motorized vehicles in there. Um, you, you you wouldn't ever be able to do any logging on the public land. So in some ways, it's really hard to hunt, and that's what I'm faced with because it's a mountainous area. And there aren't a lot of deer, like in the area that I hunt, there are approximately one to five deer per square mile. Wow. So finding the deer, uh, that can be a a really difficult task and it's different from year to year, depending on the feed. So originally I got my start when I was a kid. Uh, my father was raised on a dairy farm and uh, he never really had a lot of time to hunt. As he got older, the dairy farm kind of went under and then he, uh, he went to work in a factory. So when he started working in the factory, he had a little more time and he began to hunt. So he had a really late start. He was, he was in his early twenties when he started hunting. And, uh, since, since he lived on the base of the Adirondack park, he decided to hunt in the Adirondacks cause it was easy to hunt close to home. So, uh, I mean, that's pretty much where I started. He, he was in his early twenties, which is when I was born. So my dad and I are really close in age. Uh, he's only uh, 21 years older than me. So a lot of people think that we're brothers. And uh, I kind of like it that way because my dad's also my best friend. So when I was little, he brought me into the woods and uh, he he introduced me to hunting, but he never really forced me to go. And he always asked me if I wanted to go. And I never really uh, took a liking to hunting. I always wanted to go fishing instead. I wanted to be a uh, I wanted to be like a diehard fisherman. I'd spend every minute I had in creeks, ponds, lakes, wherever I could go to catch trout. And uh, I just didn't like killing things. And it it just turned me off. And as time went on, uh, I kind of, I warmed up to hunting a little bit. And when he would come home, I would wait for him to come home just for him to tell the stories. And what really captivated me were the stories that he brought home. And I thought to myself, I... I think I'd like to do that. I think I'd like to make my own stories.
2: Hmm.
0: And uh, then then we basically started hunting together. I got my hunting license uh, in New York at that time. You had to be 14 years old to bow hunt. And uh, I began bow hunting when I was 14. And then you couldn't rifle hunt in New York until you were 16. And that's when I began hunting with a gun. And in the early days, it was tough because uh, I think my father and I were kind of learning together. Uh, he had learned quite a bit, but we used each other and we still do today to, to kind of bounce things off from each other and uh, learn as we go. And I guess that's kind of where I stand and, and where I started. Uh, I'm definitely not an expert hunter. Uh, a lot of people, I have a collection of deer heads and I bring them to shows because I'm an author. Um, I've written a couple books on deer hunting in the Adirondacks. So to sell the books, I had to find a way to uh, promote myself even though I'm not really a self-promotional person. So I decided I have, uh, I have over 20 deer heads that are, that are mounted and my father has some on top of that. So I decided the best way to sell books would probably be to go to these outdoor shows with the collection of deer heads as my display. So then I went to the, to the shows and I brought the deer heads as a display and, and it was a huge draw. And then a lot of people began to think that I was some great hunter. <laughs> and uh, Although it might look like I know what I'm doing on the wall, uh, the reason that I got most of those deer is just be- because I send, spend so much more time in the woods than anyone else does. And if anyone spends as much time as I do in the woods, they're definitely bound to get lucky at some point in time. So
4: (laughs) I like it, but, but don't undersell yourself, Todd, you're, you're doing a lot of things right. And I think like to your point, the very most important of all things we could possibly be doing as hunters is putting in the time and energy, which definitely seems like you're checking the box on that one. But, um, But then also, I mean, right, you, you were hunting the Adirondacks and the big mountains and the big woods, which is this incredibly challenging environment. You were finding ways to kill, you know, seemingly lots of mature bucks, the kind of bucks that, you know, obviously someone in New York, but even anywhere would be pretty excited about. And then you also started changing things up though, and then traveling out to the Midwest too, right? When did that start? Uh,
0: Yeah, that's correct. I, uh, for years and years, I hunted the Adirondacks and, and if, if you're familiar with the Adirondacks, we have what we call diehard Adirondack hunters that will never ever leave the Adirondacks and because it's so challenging and so rewarding when you kill a deer there. There may be years where you might see one deer and it might be a doe, um, but if you see any buck, it doesn't even matter what kind of buck it is, it could be a spike horn, a four pointer, could be a monster 10 pointer, it could be anything. Uh, You're considered above average because some people go for a period of years without even seeing deer. So along the way, um, I was fortunate enough to start killing a lot of uh, older deer and uh, like good rack deer for the Adirondacks. Typically the Adirondacks don't produce big rack deer as far as score wise, because all their energy goes to surviving the winter. So when, when all the energy goes to that, there's nothing left over for antler growth. And on top of that, there, there isn't much feed. Um, they're pretty much browsers And there's not a lot of mast or anything in the Adirondacks except for the lower portion of the Adirondack Park. Um, So along the way, when I started killing a lot of these mature deer, uh, my father father was doing the same. And I became fascinated with big antlers. And I'm like, I would like to kill big deer and I would like to see more deer. Because I knew that I I knew I would no matter where I went I knew I would have no problem finding deer if I could find them in the Adirondacks. So uh, when we decided that we wanted to do something different, um, I began shooting what they call the IBO National Triple Crown, and uh, I was pretty successful at competitive archery. And I don't know I think it was around I'm not sure of the time frame but it was probably around the year two thousand two. Uh, I was shooting the third leg of the national triple crown and I was in Southern Ohio and uh, there was this guy in my group and I was shooting the semi-pro class and he was shooting in the hunter class. And for some reason they had him in a group of three semi-professional shooters. And this guy was really nice. And he was a local guy. He was from right there. He was trying to shoot so he could go home and he would be done with the tournament. So uh, as we were shooting, I was telling him that, you know, hunting was my passion and, uh, and I loved archery, but I never had a place to really bow hunt. So when when he was done for the day, he, he asked me to go over to his car. So I walked to his car. He showed me this photo album of all these deer he had killed. And uh, he said, well, what do you think? I said, oh, they're pretty impressive. I said, you'd probably never see a deer in a lifetime like that in the Adirondacks. And he says, well, He says, since you don't have really many bow hunting opportunities where you live, what do you think about coming out here and hunting with me? So uh, I asked him, I said, I would love to come, but my father's my best friend, and and I really can't come unless he can come with me because I don't do anything without him. And he uh, looked at me and he says, that's not a problem at all. So then we became friends and uh, he showed me some places to hunt in Ohio on public ground. And uh, that's when I started my uh, trip into the Midwest. And uh, from Ohio, I just continued all the way across the the states to Kansas. And to this day, I always take a week or two and I hunt someplace different in the Midwest. Um, I might randomly pick it out or I might hear about it from somebody else like I did from this guy. And uh, and then I just go and I hunt and I see what happens. So that's kind of my story of how I transitioned from uh, the big woods to the Midwest.
4: That's awesome. Well, I want to talk about both of those two different situations because we've got a lot of listeners that, are, that fall into one of the two camps, but I suppose let's first start where you started. Um, we don't get to talk to enough people that hunt in areas like you do in the Adirondacks or in the Northeast, um, but there's so many listeners that do. And so I'm excited to, to kind of pick your brain about how to do this because it's so different from hunting here in Michigan or Ohio where you've got, you know, lots of ag land and small woodlots and easy little pinch points and different things like that. I mean, it seems like it's a totally different ballgame. So I suppose, can you first, and you've kind of elaborate, you've touched on this a little bit already, but can you just kind of set the stage a little bit for us? You know, what is this big woods mountain hunting like in a spot like where you're at in New York and what, you know, how is it so different than what the rest of us have?
0: Okay. To the average person, it would be really scary because uh like where I hunt there's prob there's yeah, there's no intersecting road from from probably about twenty miles from the point that I enter the woods. Wow, so if you get lost and you're going in the wrong direction, uh you're gonna have mountains to cross uh or rivers to cross, mountains to climb, swamps to navigate through, and uh, it's it's really hard to not be intimidated, which is one reason why uh, not a lot of people hunt it. So when you go into the woods, you have to learn to, you have to respect the woods, but you can't be afraid of it. And uh, you have to know how to use a compass. Um, A GPS is good, but a GPS won't do you much good if it stops working. So uh, I've learned to navigate with a compass. My father taught it to me when I was young And I pretty much rely on a compass, even though I carry a GPS rhino. And uh, that's how I start. And when I say I pull up on the side of the road and I'm going to go into someplace new, I have a general idea. I've looked at it on a map, and I know kind of what's in there. And what I do is I I look at different areas that I think I want to go to. Like if there's a mountain that tapers down into a big swamp, I'll look at that. I'll circle it, and I'll be like, okay, that's the first place I'm going to go. So say it's three miles back in the woods. Um, If I've never been in here before and it's daylight, I'll just pick along and I'll observe as I go and I'll make my way to that place that I circled on the map. And once I'm there, I'll determine, is it a place that I'm going to come back to? How many good places are between where I came into the woods and where I am? And then from there, I'll continue on to say another place that I have on there and I'll try to loop all the way through it and see what I can find. Um, if I go through the area and I don't see any sign that I'm looking for, such as uh, big rubs, uh, signpost rubs, old scrapes uh, with like licking branches, stuff like that, then I probably won't go back. I need something to show me that it's worth my time to go back there. So, so
4: this is this whole the starting point. I think, at least for me, and I'm I'm betting for a lot of people beginning in an area like this seems like the most intimidating portion of the whole hunt when you have this vast wilderness, all this landscape and it's like how do I find deer? How do I even start? You mentioned the fact that you would look at maps and one example you said was that you would look where a mountain dumps off into a swamp. So, can you can you talk a little bit more about what these different spots are that you look at or look for as starting points? So that's one example. What else would you look for on a map? To say, okay, that's a good starting point And this is a good starting point. What are some of these key places you would kind of focus in on to find where these deer might be to begin with?
0: Sure. I'll tell you my, this is my favorite thing to do. Um, I'll look at a map and I'll see, uh, I'll try to find what I call a bridge. And a bridge is going to be something that takes you from one area to the other. And uh, let's say we have, just to compare, like we have an ocean on both sides of the bridge. Okay. And then on the opposite opposite end of each side of the bridge there's a there's a land mass there so i look for the bridge that links things and an example of that would be say i'm going along and i find a bunch of beaver ponds and uh these beaver these beaver ponds block the deer from going through them like they're not most likely they're not going to swim through the pond um, and then on the other end of the beaver ponds there's a uh, There's like really rugged cliffs. They're straight up and down cliffs. So you can't, the deer can't navigate it because, uh, you know, they're not rock climbers. So what I would then I have a bridge. They have to find a way to get on the other side of the beaver ponds and travel on this side of the cliff. So if you can find something like that that will funnel the deer through an area where they have no other option, uh, that's going to be most likely a really good place in big woods. And there are a lot of different places like these. Uh, the examples I used, I just used them because I have a place that uh, that I've killed a lot of really nice deer that is just like that. And uh, but it could be a variety of different things. It could be uh, it could be like a river. I mean, deer will swim rivers. But if they can go along the river and then they find a, an easier spot to cross the river downstream, like where it shallows out or something then just look for things that send the deer in the same area. Like they really focus them in one area where they don't have an option. Okay.
4: So that makes sense. So it's, we're looking for funneling features. They're just, they're different funneling features than what I have in Michigan or Ohio, you know, instead of two big fields and a little narrow strip of timber, it might be, you know, like you said, it's all within timber, but there's different terrain features or water features or things that still have the same effect. Um, do you key on and other like topographic features too, like saddles and ridges, points, that kind of stuff? That kind of stuff too.
0: Yeah, there's there are some really good places. When you're hunting big woods, and you like what I mentioned earlier, when you find a swamp at the base of a mountain, um, that's usually going to be a really good spot. And the reason being is there you'll usually find a runway that goes along the swamp, and along those swamps there are usually a bunch of scrapes, rubs, uh, etc. And The reason it's good is because the does will travel on the edge of the swamp and bucks can be on the ridge above that and if the wind's blowing uphill then they can get a whiff of it and say the buck goes down into the area by the swamp he has an easy escape route he can either go back onto the mountain or he can just jump into the thick cover in the swamp so like when I find a swamp it's uh it's definitely one of my first places I go just because uh Usually that's where you're going to find the most sign. Um, another thing, too, in swamps, like I've never, I mean, I've seen it in the Midwest, but not like in the in big woods. You'll find signpost rubs, which are rubs that the deer will come back to year after year. And uh, when you find these signpost rubs, that's usually a really good place to sit because just like a scrape, a number of different deer will visit the signpost rub. And you can usually in the area that I hunt, you'll find them like on black ash trees and they'll always be in like a lowland swampy type area. Sometimes if you're in the area and you're looking for those things in the spring, it'll be underwater. But for the most part in hunting season, uh, you know, they're usually pretty visible because the sign will take you past them.
4: So how do you use that kind of sign? This is one of the things that I'm always curious with different people. You know, everyone kind of says that they pay attention to rubs and scrapes, but I'm always curious about how you're actually factoring that into your strategy. So, okay, you find this signpost rub or you find a big scrape or something. Are you actually now going to hunt you like right over that? Or is that just like a piece of the puzzle? that tells you, okay, this is a good general area. And then you look more. I mean, how do you use specifically the sign that you see?
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. It's a, Piece of the puzzle, but you now you have to put the puzzle together. Like now, you're now in that general area where you found the signpost rub, you have to look for all the other puzzle pieces. You and you need the corner pieces to the puzzle. Without the corner pieces to the puzzle, that signpost rub sitting there is all it's going to be is a, a puzzle piece laying in the pile with the other uh, pieces. So when I find that I know it's a good area but now I have to determine what's the best area for me to sit in here. Um usually what I'll do is now that, you know, now that we have trail cameras stuff like that, I'll put uh, a bunch of trail cameras in that general area and I'll try to determine where are deer going in the daylight. And if I can establish where the deer are in the daylight, then I know I'm on the right track. Uh An example would be, I found this uh, signpost rub a few years ago, and I put my camera on it. So I got two bucks hitting the signpost tree, and uh, one of them was in the middle of the night, and one of them was at 11.15 in the morning. So I'm like, okay, I only have two deer on here. The camera was here all year. So I'm like, the odds aren't good for me to sit there. So I said, I have to do a little more research and figure this out. So then... There's a stream that goes down there and it kind of meanders back and forth and then it dumps off into a bottom. And uh, there's another small mountain that runs down in and it, it creates a bench across that stream. So uh, there were a few runways in there and even though they a 100 yards apart, I put a camera on every runway. On the three runways, two of them I had active daylight pictures, like regular daylight pictures through November. And the other one, uh, there were some pictures on there, but nothing in the daylight and, and all these runways are only a few, you know, hundred yards apart or whatever. And, uh, so then I just use that to determine, okay, deer go through here in the daylight. I have a lot of pictures and uh, it's not like in the Midwest. You're not going to have a lot of pictures such as like, uh, hundreds of pictures. Like, I think I had four daylight pictures in three weeks. So I'm like, okay, this, this is a good spot because, you know, you see so few deer mm-hmm. So after I found that, um, I determined that, you know, that's the place. And then after finding that and then sitting there, then I, I was able to, you know, to see deer and pass deer up where before it was just a shot in the dark because I found the signpost rub, but I really didn't put the pieces of the puzzle together. And then after they all directed me over there to where those three runways were, which was just over the next hill, um, then I knew I knew I had that puzzle figured out so then it's time to go to the next one
4: so on the trail camera piece can you can you elaborate on the details of how you're using them? so it sounds like you're finding a general area you know doing some on foot scouting and then you're fine tuning with trail cameras but like when do you put out the cameras uh how long are you running them throughout the year how often are you checking them i'm kind of curious about that stuff
0: yeah this is a tough one because i'm not around a lot so what i used to do this is a new area i'm hunting and i haven't hunted it in uh You know, I randomly hunted. I don't hunt it a lot. So uh, I kind of wanted to know what was going on in there. So uh, what I did is the first year in there, I put the cameras in in July. And by, uh, what the hell was it? By the end of August, I had no cameras left because bears destroyed them.
2: Uh,
0: Bears pulled them off trees. They smashed them on the ground. And it was just a mess. Jeez. So that first year was a disaster. So I'm like, okay, I can't do this. I can't put them in here that early because for some reason that early, the bears get them. So then I started putting them in. Our muzzle muzzleloader season usually opens the second weekend of October. So I'm like, okay, I'll put them in the second weekend of October and I'll leave them there through the season, which is the, usually the first weekend, second weekend of December. And uh, what I did is I put them in there in the, in the beginning and I put... uh I always put some of them on scrapes. Like if I, I that area I was just telling you about, I found a, a primary scrape with a licking branch in there. There was a bunch of rubs around it, and it was on a runway. So I kicked the scrape out, and uh, I put buck urine in it, and then I put a camera on it. And then there were two runways on each side of that, and, and they were well-used runways. And I decided, well, I'll put cameras on both of them. So uh, So now I have those three cameras right there, so I have a one on a scrape that they use every year. Figuring I'm going to get most of the deer in this, most of the bucks in this area because they're going to come back to that scrape. So uh, then I I went in I checked it the next week because I'm I'm going to every weekend. I'm only in there on the weekend because uh, it's too far for me to hunt like after work stuff like that. And then I go away to the Midwest. I usually leave for the Midwest uh, the first of November. So I have that one week to check it. So I go in there, I check all of them. And uh, when I put that camera on the scrape, the next week, I had a daylight picture at nine o'clock the next day from when I put it on there. Wow. And it was a really, really good buck for the Adirondacks. And uh, the two the two cameras on the runways had nothing on them. So then uh, now I'm now I'm in the Midwest. So then I come home and when I come home, uh, I usually come home on Thanksgiving week. So on Thanksgiving Day, I'll drive my few hours north and walk my few hours in the woods and I'll hunt, uh, you know, the morning and early afternoon for Thanksgiving and I'll go in and I'll check them. I'll check every camera I have in the woods and then I'll determine what I'm going to do from that point until the end of our season. And, uh, so really I only check the cameras. I check them probably three times a year. I check them that first week. Um, when I come back from vacation in the middle of November and then I check them, uh, a week after that going into the last week of our season. And then I'll make any adjustments on whether I think I'm in a, you know, I could be in a better spot and, and things like that based on what I see on the camera.
4: So typically, and maybe this is different now that you're, that you spend time in the Midwest, but do you spend a lot of time hunting in that October time period, or are you usually waiting till later during gun season? Um, you know, when you can still hunt and stuff like that?
0: Uh, it's funny you ask that because I thought about that today and I'm like, I think he's going to ask me this question. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to answer it because I have to be truthful. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I for 20 years um, from the time I was 16 until the time I was 36, I can count on one hand the number of days I missed in our entire season in New York. And those days I missed uh, they're all because I was sick. And uh, I remember one year I missed uh, one day because I was I was really sick. I couldn't get out of bed. And my father killed a really nice buck on that day. And then I missed uh, I missed three days on another year because I was uh, I had like the flu and I, I couldn't even get out of bed. And they're the only three days I missed in, in those 20 years in the season in New York. And uh, what happened is when I started going to the Midwest, I started getting a little less ambitious as far as going into the big woods because uh <laughs> I know that I'm not going to see any deer. And I mean I'll see deer, but uh, the work you put into it to see the deer, it's just it's beyond what most people can comprehend. And I always put the work in back then. But now as I've gotten older, I I I wouldn't say I've gotten lazy, but I'm like maybe I'm smarter because I know what I'm going to see in the woods at that point in time. Right. So now <laughs> I kind of I back off a little, like, I mean, I'll, I've hunted one day so far, but next weekend, our muzzleloader season will open and then I'll be in the woods pretty much every day. Just because I always think in the back of my mind, this could be the day.
4: Right. All right. So how do you deal with that though, as a hunter, knowing that you're going to see so few deer and that you know, that this type of honey is so much more difficult than, you know, what guys are dealing with in these other states. I mean, what's your advice for another guy that's got a similar situation like that? How do you handle that? How do you deal with that knowledge, that painful knowledge that this is a very difficult hunt?
0: (laughs) I just wrote an article about this for New York Outdoor News. And, uh, I, I think I'm a little bit different than most people because, That when I don't see any deer, it drives me. Like I want to hunt harder because I'm like I want to see a deer and I want to see the deer that I want to see. Um, So a lot of people will get discouraged, and I'm kind of the opposite. I I hunt with my buddy Brian, and he gets really discouraged, and I, I don't really get discouraged. I get more, uh, I get more confident as I go. Like I can always feel it when I'm getting close. I'm like, I'm getting close. I'm getting close, and I'm not sure if I'm convincing myself of that or if it's really happening. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, I always I always do these things to make myself realize that, you know, the next minute could be the minute that you shoot the biggest buck of your life mm-hmm. in New York. And uh, what I do, I, I use little things like uh, if I see new sign that I hadn't seen before or I go through some new country, I'm like, uh, this this could be the place. And I just use little things to motivate me. So it's not. I mean, you have to find things to motivate you to go in the woods. And one thing I just like, and I enjoy being in the woods because I I'm kind of a loner and I like to be alone and I like my alone time and uh, my mind wanders all over the place. And, uh, I've probably written a thousand novels when I've been sitting in the woods <laughs> and it just gives me, uh, it gives me time to unwind and, and appreciate life because where I'm from, it's really wild country. And, uh, it gives you a better appreciation for who you are and, and where you come from.
4: Yeah, I imagine. So converse to that. So, right, there's this innate challenge to hunting in an environment like that. But tell me about the feeling when you do kill a mature buck in a situation like that. It's got to be pretty incredible.
0: Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's an unbelievable feeling but then it can be followed by like extreme sadness almost. Hmm. Because like some of these deer, like one deer, I hunted this one deer for a number of years and I'm like, I am going to catch up to this deer. And every time the deer like outsmarted me and it would blow, it would take off, uh, I'd jump it. And for big woods, that doesn't happen usually too often because usually you don't find the same deer in the same area because <laughs> they're they're kind of wanderers, they're nomads. But this one deer, like we, we just went back and forth. It was like a nonstop battle. And then there was this really, really crappy morning. I mean, it was, it was brutal. It was nasty. It had snowed all night. The The snow were it was on the trees. You couldn't see anything. And I was sitting there and I heard like a little noise and I looked over and the deer was, it was looking right at me and I had my gun in my lap. I picked the gun up, I put on it and, and it was almost like we looked at each other and, uh, and the, I could tell the deer was saying, Oh shit. (laughs) And, uh, but he, there was nothing he could do. And then I just pulled the trigger and, and it was over. And, uh, it was, I don't know. It's kind (laughs) of, I don't know if you can compare it like this, but it's like watching a movie and then the ending comes in, uh, you almost want to cry because it's like, oh man, that that sucks. I mm-hmm. knew that was gonna happen, but that sucks.
4: Uh-huh. I can 100 you know I mean? like percent you're, relate.
0: Yeah. So I don't know if that's a kinda you know, explains it well enough, but that's kinda how it feels like.
4: Yeah, it's it's a perfect analogy. You don't want that movie to end.
0: Yeah, exactly.
4: I, I completely understand what you're saying. I get so sure.
0: caught up in the challenge that when I accomplish the the task. Like I, I'm not, I don't know if I'm ready for a new task. It's like, okay, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't had enough of this, of this one yet. Mm
4: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've experienced something similar for sure. I, um, I was kind of curious as you mentioned a second ago about the fact that you don't bump deer very often in this kind of, in this kind of area because there's just not that many deer. Um, how do these deer react to hunting pressure? I mean, do they get so little hunting pressure that it doesn't bother them or do they freak out because they're not used to seeing humans. And when they do, it's like this huge
0: change. They do both of those things. Uh, every, I've seen deer do both, you know, both ends of the spectrum. Uh, it all depends on the deer and every deer is different. Like I have this one deer that I've been chasing around now for a few deer, a few years. And it's weird. Like I'll put a trail camera up and then I'll leave. And then the deer will be in that buck will be in the, in the picture within an hour of when I left. Yeah. And and it happens every single time. And it's almost like he's toying with me, like he's watching (laughs) me or something. (laughs) And then I have this other deer, um, for the last four years, I've gotten one picture of him and it's been on all different cameras. And as soon as that deer sees the camera or like the picture, you know, it takes a picture, he's gone because I have it on like video and the picture comes first and he bolts out of there so quick. It's, it's unbelievable. And uh, so, I mean, every deer is kind of different. And I've had deer that I've jumped and they've stood up and they've just turned around, looked at me and I've shot them. And I've had other deer that uh, I've never seen them again.
2: Hmm.
0: So it's kind of every, you know, it's kind of like people, each person is their own person. And and in this area, kind of each deer is their own deer.
4: Right. That makes sense. So, kind of going back to like the building blocks of a strategy in this kind of situation, right? It sounds like a lot of what you're doing is focusing on finding these funneling features, something that funnels deer through them. But do you ever spend time actually trying to find bedding or feeding areas in a in a spot <laughs> like this or does does that even exist? Is it all just uh. bedding and feeding?
0: <laughs> The thing is with the feeding thing is, uh, what I do is when the snow flies, well, even when the snow's not on the ground, I mean, you can see where they paw around in leaves. Like say, I'm sure you're familiar with this. If you go to where there are a lot of oaks, Mm -hmm. you can see where they pawed around in the leaves. Leaves are turned over and they find the acorns. Um, I always look for that early in the year because if I can find where deer are feeding, um, whether usually the area I hunt, it's uh, mostly beech nuts if there are any nuts. And if I can find where they're feeding, I'll definitely go there because it's like a gold mine because they don't normally have that type of food because they they really only have browse in the area. So the instant that I can find anything like that, um, I'll be sitting on it and it doesn't matter whether it's early season, late season, uh, middle of the season, because deer have to eat. And uh, it's kind of like this, if you drive down the street and you see a subway, chances are you're going to see people in it. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. True.
0: So it's the same thing. So when I find something like that, it's like a subway or a McDonald's, like I know they're going to be in it because, uh, cause those restaurants don't exist in that region. Yeah. So, I mean, they're going to go to the good food and, uh, and then usually like when the rut comes along or whatever, I know does will be feeding there. And if I can see does, then I know I'm going to see bucks because in the mountains, bucks will go for miles to to search out a doe. And uh, as far as bedding, like I've seen, I've seen a lot of places where the same buck will bed over and over. It might be like on a ledge that overlooks a big bowl or something like that. But on the opposite end too, I think a lot of our deer are like random wanderers. They wander, 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 and then they get tired and they lay down. Because it's not like they don't need a bedding ground like in the Midwest. In the Midwest, they need the bedding ground for protection. But in the big woods where they don't really have a lot of predators, um, such as like humans, um, the bedding area, it doesn't, I mean, some places I hunt, you'll see it. But for the most part, it's just random. They'll bed here and there. (laughs) A lot of them like to bed high, you know, high on mountains and and stuff like that where they're a little bit above everything.
4: Yeah. What do, you, what do you think is the biggest mistake that most guys or girls are making when hunting in places like this? Because most people, I'm, I'm making an assumption here, tell me if I'm wrong, but most hunters out there in the Adirondacks or New Hampshire or Vermont or wherever, Pennsylvania, where they're hunting this hilly big woods country, most of these people are not killing the big old bucks, the few big old bucks that live out there. So what are these people doing? What's the most common mistake that these people are doing that's keeping them from killing that big old one?
0: I don't know if it would be a mistake, but most people just don't have the drive. I mean, it's like what we just talked about. You need to go, 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 go and go without giving up. And most people just give up. Um, I mean, they just don't have it in their uh, mental makeup to keep on going. But as far as the people who hunt all the time that actually, you know, they, they hunt every day and they just can't catch up to them. There are a bunch of different things that probably contribute to the reasons why they're not successful. And one of them is I think that people go too fast. Like they're ram, 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 and they don't pay attention to the clues that are around them. It's like what we were talking earlier with the puzzle pieces. As you go, put the puzzle together. Don't just walk through the middle of all the pieces that are laying on the floor. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what people do. They ram through the pieces on the floor without really trying to put all of them together. If you step back and you take the time to put them together, then uh, the picture is going to be painted in front of you. And uh, that's that's kind of what I try to do. And another thing I know that, like, I have a friend of mine who, he just can't figure out why everybody else kills big deer, and he has such a hard time with it. He'll see them occasionally, but he doesn't kill them. And he overanalyzes everything. <laughs> it's okay to be analytical, but don't overanalyze yourself to death. Yeah. Because he just every single thing and I, it it hurts my head to listen to him talk. <laughs> because I'm like, wow, I can't even imagine like thinking that much. Uh deer, deer are habitual creatures, but if if you were able to figure out their habit, then you you'd kill a big buck every single year. They're you know, even though they're habitual, they don't have habits where you can just say, "Okay, I got this figured out." Anybody who says they have deer figured out, then uh, I, I have a hard time believing that Mm
2: -hmm.
0: because a lot of it just comes down to luck. You're, you put yourself in the right place and you're there at the right time. Like a deer might go through an area, whether you're in the Midwest or whether you're in the Adirondacks, it might go through an area once a week. If you're there on Tuesday and it goes through on Wednesday, then you're out of luck. But if you're there the same day he goes through, then that's your lucky day. Mm -hmm. So it's, if you, it goes back to that. If you put your time in, you'll probably be successful. And uh, that's what I always tell people just put your time in. Yeah.
4: Yeah. It's funny. Mature deer sure have a way of making the best made plans look foolish. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. uh, (laughs) You can, but to your point, you have to do your best to make those plans and look at the puzzle and to try to put yourself in the best possible position. And then at least you've got the best chance of getting that luck that you just need to wait for and, and put your time in to eventually get. So
0: that's another thing. Like uh, people, I mean a lot of people too. Like I hunt in most people in the Adirondacks, they don't hunt specific deer and they hunt in parties. Um that's why I'm a little bit unique in uh in the Adirondacks because I hunt by myself and I usually try to hunt a specific deer. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of things you have to pay attention to when you're hunting a specific deer. Uh, And I think people just don't pay attention to that. Like a lot of my friends are trackers and I tell people I don't have the patience for trackers. Then my tracking friends tell me they don't have the patience to sit. (laughs) So you have to find, you know, what works for you. And although I don't track, I still hunt. So, uh, and when I'm still hunting, I pay attention to things like, uh, you know, a, a big buck is going to have a, you know, a wider gait when it's walking. And uh, you, you usually know it's carrying a good rack. Like you'll see where does will go, th- like they'll go underneath uh, trees. They'll go like in between trees and a big buck won't do that because a lot of times his antlers won't go through there. So he'll walk around it. So if you pay attention and you see where deer, like a deer walks around something, you're like, oh, that might be the deer right there. Hmm. Or, you know, they might, some of them might have like a distinguishable mark on their track or something like that. And a lot of people don't pay attention. I mean, as you go, you have to look at the tracks and pay attention. Oh, okay. That, that one has a chipped hoof. I can see it right there. And then, you know, it's the same deer. So, I mean, just try to pay attention to different things that deer do Mm
4: -hmm. yeah the whole thing with tracks is something that it's it's something that so many modern hunters i think overlook because we have you know the technology like trail cameras and stuff to make you know scouting a little bit easier but it's something that i think um, you know you know given what you're saying and a lot of other successful hunters it's something that should not be ignored i'm trying to get better at paying attention to that and learning what those subtle things are that you need to look look for that might determine, yes, this is a mature buck or, yes, this is the type of track I need to be keying in or, or this is a recent track versus an older track versus, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's, there's a lot of kind of woodsmanship that I think has been lost that I think we probably, all of us, would benefit to learn a little bit more about.
0: Yeah, that's where I'm kind of lucky because, uh, like, at my age, I started before all the technological uh, advances in hunting. Mm-hmm. So I kind of you know, I have the best of both worlds. I have the old stuff to go by and I have the new stuff to help me. Um, It's just like when when I'm in the woods or whatever and you have a bunch of deer in an area. And uh, I learned this from a friend of mine. Um, You have a bunch of tracks, you get a track and you're lost in there. You're like, oh, where the hell did he go? And a friend of mine from Maine, Randy Flannery, he says, uh, you know, just take a little stick, put it in the track and break it off the same length as the track he says when you go through just keep putting in the tracks till you find you'll find the same track because it'll fit exactly the same in the track so then like if you thought a deer went out one way you could find out just by that little stick you got in your pocket that it's actually gone the other way Hmm. and you're not wasting a lot of time doing that so uh, and same thing like people people don't pay attention to when deer uh pee in the snow and uh Bucks will almost always like they they tend to urinate when they walk, but at the same time when they when they urinate they shoot a hole in the snow. And uh, does like if you see the tracks in the snow uh, where does go to the bathroom, uh, it'll the urine will usually be behind like where the rear hoof prints are because uh, does have to squat to pee usually. So, I mean, you ha- if you pay attention to stuff like this, then you'll have a better idea of what you're seeing as far as the tracks instead of just saying, oh, there's a lot of tracks here.
4: Right, right. Well, that's it's interesting. It, yeah. That's, uh, to your point, so many of us run right through the puzzle without even really paying attention to what is there, without reading the clues. And that's one of those things that, that I certainly have have probably not done a good enough job of paying attention to as well. So that's super interesting stuff. Um. So, I guess unless there's something big that you think we've left out on the big woods, i got let me ask that first. Is there anything that we should touch on when it comes to big woods or mountain hunting before we move on to what you're doing in the Midwest? Anything you want to make sure that you share or we touch oh, on? Oh, yeah,
0: another thing on why people don't kill deer up there? Um, what people do and this happens anywhere. it could be like in Ohio, like where you hunt or you know where a buddy hunts in Michigan or whatever.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: A lot of people will kill a deer, they'll kill a nice deer and they'll go back there next year, then they'll go back there the next year, and they'll go back there next year. I've killed a lot of deer in the same places, but at the same time, if I kill a deer in a place, I don't keep going back there just because I killed a deer there in the past. Like if I go back there, there's a reason why I'm back there. So don't keep returning to the same place if the sign doesn't warrant you going back there. See, because people think, oh, I killed a deer here last year. I'm going to kill another big buck here this year. And it just doesn't work that way usually.
4: Yeah, it's a great point, right? It comes down to, you said it, why? Why did I kill big buck here? And if the answer to that question is, well, because he was randomly chasing a doe or something, well, maybe that's not somewhere you're going to kill a buck year after year. But if the answer to that is, well, because this terrain feature funneled him down here, then maybe that is a spot, right? I mean, that's exactly, exactly. it's it's asking that question.
0: Yeah, and then uh, I mean another thing I do too is when I kill deer, if it's on the snow, I always backtrack them. Okay, I killed it. The deer is dead there. Before I do anything else, I'll follow the tracks backwards. And uh, most people will never take the time to do it because they're so excited that they just killed a deer. If I follow the tracks backward, I might find out something that uh, could help me in the future. Um, and then I want to find out where did the deer come from and what was it doing before it got to me. That's so, uh, yeah, and uh, it, I mean, that's another one of those puzzle pieces. You might find another piece of your puzzle, even though you think you already put the puzzle together. So it's uh, little things like that that a lot of people overlook or don't do. And uh, and I think this stuff like that might help me uh, be successful, uh, you know, more often than not.
4: Yeah, yeah, it seems like it. I love that idea, too, backtracking. I, I always find myself like wishing, like, it'd be so cool if you could, of course I wouldn't want this to be in the real situation, but it'd be so cool to be able to have a deer that you could, like, track and see, you know, have a radio collar on or somewhere if I had, like, personal access to just, see what a deer does during his day. I know some researchers do have that. And I guess maybe I just want to be a researcher and and be able to have that um, just to see how, how fascinating it would be to see how a buck spends his day. You know, we all, you know, I'm always making assumptions about what I think they're doing and where they're traveling and how they're doing it. But I would love to like, like if you, once you killed your buck, if you could like press a little button and then it show okay, here's what he's been doing his whole life. I mean, that would be so interesting. And I guess what you're doing, backtracking it is, is a real life way to, get a little bit of insight into that. So I like that idea.
0: It's entertaining. Yeah, for sure. As long as you have snow. (laughs) Yes.
4: Yeah. That helps a lot, which is trickier. It seems like these days we don't get quite, quite as much of it as I feel like I did when I was younger. But, um, Mm -hmm. so let's talk about when you made that transition to heading out West. We've talked to a number of different hunters over the past couple of years who live in different parts of the country that travel to the Midwest. And I think there's lots and lots of people like that who have their, their week of rut vacation, maybe, where they're going to go to their big buck Holy land state and they've got to fit in all their hopes and dreams into that seven days or whatever (laughs) it is. You've been able to do this consistently successfully. How do you, let's start at the beginning. How do you start that? How do you even pick like where you're going to hunt? What's a good, cause you're doing most of this on public land, I think, right? Um, Oh yeah. Yep. So how do you even begin that? How do you pick, okay, this is a good public land spot. This isn't or anything like that. But actually, before we make this shift, let's pause briefly to thank our partners of this podcast episode, Maven Optics. And Maven is a relatively new company creating high-end optics like binoculars and spotting scopes for serious outdoor adventurers, but they're doing it differently than anyone else out there. And the biggest differentiator is that they only sell direct to the consumer through their website, and this allows them to do a couple things. First... Because they don't have a retailer middleman, they can sell these very high-end optics at significantly lower prices than the other optics manufacturers out there. And secondly, they're also able to offer a huge amount of customization options for these optics. I'm talking all sorts of different builds and colors and camos and engraving and all sorts of really cool stuff. But what do you really get when upgrading to a high-end optic like this? That's what I recently asked Maven co-founder Brendan Weaver.
3: Well, I think you know, it's a lot of money, you know, it's, and I, and I don't mean to downplay that, that, you know, you can, you can buy a decent binocular in Walmart and it it works for a lot of people. A thousand dollars is a lot of money to spend on something. And so it it takes a lot of consideration. and, And, you know, I guess what I tell people is that if, if whatever you're doing is, is, Kind of aimed at going out super early, staying out late, and the value that you get during those two times of the day, if that's a high value to you, that's when you're going to see something like what we put out there. That's when you're going to see the difference. If you take our stuff out and you you line it up against every other brand in the market in the middle of the day, great light, um, I know what to look for. You know, you can show people the, the differences in it, um, and, and granted, you're going to see the, the, a big difference between something that's super cheap and what we're putting out. But um, it's, it's that extra, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, and sometimes even longer than that, that you can get in a day from using something like a Maven product. Because if, if you know, you don't get to get out there and hunt all that much. Um, and a lot of stuff happens early and late. And if you can stretch that out for another hour, you know, and let's say that you've got, you know, you've carved out your vacation time. You've been looking forward to this hunt for, for five years. You put it together with your buddies and you can make use of an extra hour of daylight a day over, you know, a week. That's a lot of time. And that's, you know, that can be pretty important. And it's, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, a chance that you don't want to spend, you know, step up from 250 to to $1,000 to make that happen. But I personally think it's worth that money um, to get that kind of performance. And that's what you get. Um, you get, you know, you get flawless glass, but you get fantastic low light performance um, when you step up into a glass like ours.
4: I can definitely attest to that. I've been using Maven binoculars for the last two years now. And wow, what you can see in those final minutes of daylight is way, way, way different than I used to with my old cheapos. So, if you'd like to check out some Maven binoculars for yourself, even build up a sample set, you can go to mavenbuilt.com. That's Maven and then the word built, B U I L T, dot com. And now back to the show with Todd. I was just asking Todd about how he begins this whole process of finding a spot to hunt on public land in the Midwest.
0: I do a lot of research. Um, and another thing too is I have a pretty big network of people across the country. Um, you know, i shot competitive archery for 25, 30 years, and I've met a lot of people across the country. So that usually gives me a relatively safe area to start. Like if I know somebody that lives, say I know somebody lives in Michigan or whatever, and I, I say, well, how's the hunting near you? And then we talk a little bit and I'm like, well, if I was coming out there hunting, where do you think a good area of the state would be to go? And, you know, they give me their opinion. Then I'll, I'll go online. I'll look at it and, uh, I'll start looking around a little bit and then I'll, I'll search different hunting forums to see if anybody talks about those places. And, uh, I, I guess you'd call me a stalker, (laughs) <laughs> like I don't I don't say anything I just read all the stuff mm-hmm. okay and then if I say I go like online on a forum and I find somebody I'm looking at it and I'm like oh like actually I, I've hunted Colorado the same same place for years in uh, elk hunting and uh, so then this year I was looking at a different area I just wanted to explore a little bit and I'm like holy cow there's a guy that's signed on right there in his hometown is the same exact place I'm going huh. so I just sent the guy a note. I said, uh, hey, uh, you know, I've hunted out there since 1990, and uh, I'm coming out. Do you know anything about this area? I mean, it's just a generic random, you know, question or whatever. And you'd be amazed at how people help you. Mm -hmm. And as long as I'm not infringing on him, like he's going to give me information. And, uh, like, I get a lot of information that way. And, okay, for every 10 times you do it, you're probably gonna strike out eight times, but then you might just hit that one person that could really help you. Um, some people aren't willing to help, other people are. And uh, I formed lifelong friendships through stuff like that. I know years ago, I uh, oh, it was in the mid 90s maybe, I was uh, online and I this person wanted uh, information on this special draw unit for elk hunting in Colorado. I had just hunted it the month before, and I knew I wasn't getting drawn for probably four or five more years. So I just typed to the guy, I said, this is my phone number, give me a call, I'll give you any of the information that you would like. So uh, he, he called me up and he says, well, what can you tell me about I said, well, I've hunted it three times. I said, and when I was in there, this is what I learned, and this is where I killed the elk. And this is where I saw a lot of elk, this is the place I would avoid. Well, he went in there, he killed a really nice elk, and uh, then he he said to me, he said, well, he says, uh, if I can ever return the favor, he says, I'll return the favor. And uh, I think it was actually like 1998, maybe. And in 2006, he called me on the phone. We kind of kept in touch, uh, sent like, you know, emails back and forth now and then, but it wasn't wasn't like a regular uh, contact back and forth, but we did keep in touch. In uh, like 2006, I think he called me and he says, uh, Hey, he says, uh, I, I got a place that you can look at hunting out here. He says, uh, I have a little more time now where I can be involved in it, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, he lived in Kansas. So that's how I started hunting in Kansas. Hmm. And then when I started going out there, he gave me more and more information. I met more people out there and uh, one thing led to the next. So that's kind of how I go about, uh, finding my places. And then I'll also go through like every, almost every state has uh, on their website, they have conservation areas. Um, I click on almost every single conservation area and I study everyone and I write down what it has that I like. And then I, if I find enough of the stuff that I like in it, then I, I set it aside. I'm like, okay, this one has to get looked at further. So then I'll go down, and then I'll come up with, say, 30 or 40 of them, and then I'll just keep on narrowing it down until I find the place I want. So then when I decide where I'm going to go, I have my place I'm going, but I have no idea how many people are going to be there. So I'm, like, crossing my finger it's not going to be overwhelmed with people. So when I get there, I have a plan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at this place, that place, and that place, and I'm usually with my father and either one or two of my friends. So there's, like, four of us that travel together. So each of us bites a chunk off and we all go in our own directions. And then we come back and we decide it's worth hunting or it's not worth hunting. And uh, if it's a maybe, then we'll, uh, we'll give it a a couple more days or whatever. But if it's a no, then I go to my next place on there. Even if it's a three hour drive away, okay, we're going to the next place and I won't waste time in some place once I get there that it, it doesn't show what I want it to show. And uh, so I don't get sucked into someplace that I shouldn't be. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And uh, I think that's the secret. You just, you have to be willing to move and you have to be willing to blow a week or two of your vacation. If I come home with nothing, I don't care because uh, I've come home with nothing before. And if I come home with nothing, then it's, it's a bad trip if I didn't learn anything. But if I learn something then I'm probably going to capitalize on that in the, in the next trip.
4: So I want, to, I want to take a jump back to something, and then I want to talk a little bit more about those first couple of days of your hunt. But first, you said that you're looking at all these pieces of public land, like you know you find it on the state website, and it sounds like you're looking at maps and stuff. And you mentioned that you're looking for certain good things on these properties, and if a property has enough of the good things, then you're going to focus on that. What are the things you're looking for? What are those good things that you're trying to key in on that tell you that this property could have potential?
0: One thing that I look for is I'm from the Adirondacks, So I'm looking for pieces of land that have a lot of timber on it, which you know, of course, sometimes that's hard to find in the Midwest. Uh, Number one, I know if I find timber, it's going to keep a lot of people out of it because people are afraid of the woods uh, no matter how big they are. So if I can find acreage that's, uh, you know, anything above like uh, a thousand acres of wooded area, then I'll definitely circle that like this is a place I need to go because a thousand acres it might not seem much but if you're in a thousand acres of woods and you've never really hunted woods you've hunted field edges stuff like that it can be really intimidating for the average guy Mm
2: -hmm.
0: so i look for that and i look for places i can access uh only by boat so if i can only get there with a boat then i'm almost sure it's going to be good so uh You know, I I do that whether it's a river, a lake, a stream, like whatever it is. So those two things out of the way. Um, I also look for areas that either are closed to hunting. Um, It might be a place around there that has, there's no hunting allowed. It might be owned by like a government agency, um, might be owned by, uh, say, like a church group, and they own a big piece of land and there's no hunting allowed on it. Because then I know there's no hunting allowed on it. It's, it works as a sanctuary mm-hmm. for deer on the public land, and that's where they're going to go.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, I look at plat maps to see who owns the land around it, and then I'll research that online. I'll be that silent stalker again. <laughs> in uh, some, some places, I one place that I found was really good because I knew that this person hunted on their own land, and they were a, a presence in social media, and I'm like, I just found your land <laughs> and, uh, and it bordered public land. Wow. And, and I had read where they had killed like 190 inch deer on it. And I'm like, there's no way that deer wasn't living on that public land. Wow. So, I mean, you have to, it, it goes back to the whole thing about you have to be a little more motivated than everybody else. And that's kind of what has led to, to me being successful, I think. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. I I do a lot of that plat book stalking too, but I've got a buddy who just takes it to a whole different level. (laughs) Like he literally knows everyone for like two counties. If you mention a last name, he's like, Oh yeah, such and such is over by this street and that street. And I hear there's a, there's a co-op down the road from there. And I heard that such and such has got the number six book buck in the state. And gosh, he knows everything for all of Southern Michigan.
0: (laughs) he, He and I should get together. Yes. Yes. There'd
4: be some interesting conversations. Um,
0: uh, actually, I'll tell you one of the best places I ever found.
4: Uh, yeah, let's let's I, get
0: it. I was driving I was driving down the road, and my dad and I had a general idea. Somebody told me, go look in this area and i I'm in Southern Ohio. So I'm driving along and I'm like, we're driving down this road, and I look and there's this guy taking this picture on the barn. He's got his deer heads on a barn, and he's taking a picture, and he's got his bow and it's uh, <laughs> You know, and he's standing and I as soon as we drove by him, I looked and I said to my father, I said, Turn the freaking car around. <laughs> I said, That's so and so. I said, I saw him in North American Whitetail last month. Wow. And uh, he turned around and this is on a back road in the middle of nowhere. We're we're basically kind of lost, even though we know we know where we are, but we don't know how we got there. Right. So we meet this guy and uh and we start talking to him. He introduced himself and of course I, I know who he is, but I you know, I know his name. And I know him from reading about him. Right. But I don't, you know, I don't personally know him. So then we talk back and forth and he's, and he's saying, oh yeah, he thinks we're just, I mean, we're not pretending we're hunters or anything. We're just kind of like, you know, oh, those deer are cool, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't know the first thing about us. So uh, anyhow, we got a bunch of information about him. then uh, it turns out like the picture that he was taking on the barn, it showed up in another uh, bow hunting magazine. Jeez. And I'm like, hmm interesting and then everything he's talking about in there i'm like i know exactly where he killed this deer (laughs) (laughs) and it bordered all public land
4: wow that's pretty awesome there's (laughs) there's some good stuff down that part of the state that's for sure
0: so i mean a lot of it's like i said a lot of a lot of things are just luck Mm
2: -hmm. i mean i was lucky to be
0: driving down the road that day and he was there i would have never known that he lived there because i i wasn't doing the old plat mapping down there because it was just a place i was randomly looking at Mm mm-hmm so
4: I love it. Sometimes <laughs> you just gotta be present and out there trying, and just sometimes the exactly. luck will fall into your lap. That applies to hunting or finding places to hunt or anything like that. Um, really quick, kind of taking a little tangent here. You talked about how one of the things you look for is water where water keeps people from accessing places and when we talked earlier this year you told me about a pretty cool little lightweight canoe i think or kayak or boat yeah, that you use to access these spots what was that because that sounds like a tool that a lot of people would would find handy
0: back here in new york a lot of people do like backcountry fishing in ponds where they got a they have to carry boats for miles into the woods on trails and some of them go you know like cross lots with no trails and the boat. Uh, they're called Radisson canoes. Um, what they do is they come with two oars. You sit in the bottom of the canoe and it's lightweight. It's like uh, 25, 35 pounds. And uh, they come with uh you can get a shoulder strap for them. So you can carry them kind of like a, a backpack almost. And uh, you walk through the woods with them. And these things are great because they're fairly stable. They're not, you wouldn't want to be in it if you, if you weren't comfortable in a canoe, they're fairly stable and they can get you almost any place that you want to go. And we use them. We usually bring two of them with us. And, uh, then they're we're able to get down small streams. We're be able to get across big rivers, uh, ponds, lakes. And, uh, but one thing you, you really have to do is you have to have a life jacket with you. I mean, I would never go in the water without a life jacket.
4: Yeah. Uh, how expensive are those? Do you have any idea what they run? Oh shoot!
0: I would say the last I knew they were running between like six and seven hundred bucks, but that was that was a long time ago, so I okay. don't know. Oh. Um, they make another. There's another person up here in the Adirondacks that makes a Kevlar canoe, and uh, the those are a little bit more uh, unstable for me, and they're a lot more expensive, and uh, they're called Hornbeck canoes, and they're made right here in the Adirondacks.
4: Interesting. I yeah. was I was just at uh I was at REI last night actually and they had something called an Oru kayak. The brand was O O R U is how yeah. you spell it. And it basically was a kayak or a small canoe that packed up with a back with backpack straps on the back of it and it packed up into basically I don't know like like about the size of if you were to buy a hang-on tree stand, the box that a hang-on tree stand comes in yeah that's basically what this packed down to, and then you could just throw that in your back. That was an, an interesting idea I saw too i don't I don't know how much that cost, but um having a portable boat like that would seem super super handy to access some of these spots so uh, so fast forward let's fast forward back to where you were talking about last so you've found your different you've got a handful of different public properties you're gonna hunt now you and your buddies and your dad you start going out there these first few days so tell me a. How are you hunting those first couple of days? You know, are you just sitting observation stands or do you know, like, I want to go right to the best spot? Like, tell me, how are you first hunting? And then <laughs> what do you need to see that either tells you to stay or go to a new spot?
0: Uh, we, we probably piss off a lot of people because we're kind of <laughs> like wild banshee Indians. Uh, we will walk through every single bit of the property like I'll I'll cover every single bit of it. I mean, I'll walk, I'll zigzag, I'll do everything. And I'm sure people get pissed because it's in November, you're on public land, people are on their vacation and I'm walking all through the woods. (laughs) And uh, we all do the same thing. And what we do is we walk in the first day, we'll try to determine where do we wanna go? Like, where do we wanna start on the next day? And then like, I'll either mark it with my GPS Um, like, okay, I'll, I'll mark the waypoint, and then I'll have it right there. And, uh, like this'll be number one, number two or whatever. And then the next day I'll go back there. We'll all go back to wherever we found and we'll hunt there in the morning and then we'll see what happens in the morning. We'll meet in the afternoon and then we'll come up with another game plan. And like, say you're hunting on like a, you know, public area that's 4,000 acres or something. And it's it's on a bunch of different roads. We'll all go to a different road and we'll all do our thing. And then we'll come back and we'll discuss it. And then we'll make a plan from there. Like my father and I try to cut area, do what I call cut areas off. Like if he finds a place and it looks like, uh, you know, two of us can be in one area and we might be able to get a big buck. Say there's a big buck sign in there then be like, okay, maybe if two of us are in here fairly close together, then one of us will get a chance. And that's really key to hunting. You need really, really good hunting partners. If you don't have the right hunting partners, your, your trips can be a disaster. Yeah. I like, I mean, you can't care who kills the deer. I don't care who kills the deer, whether it's me, my buddy, Doug, my buddy, Brian, or my father. I don't care who kills it as long as one of us gets a good deer. Like I, like right now I'm getting a lot of the, you know, a lot of people have, have found me because I had to do a little self promotion because of my books and stuff. But, uh, those three people that hunt with me, my father, Doug and Brian, I mean, they're just as successful as I am. And without them, I wouldn't be as successful as I am. So it's kind of like a team type thing. Yeah. So
4: when you're out there, what is going to tell you, I guess I still want to know what's the criteria to, to stay or go. You know, if you, if you guys go out there and you, you, you check out these areas, if you see another hunter or a couple other hunters, is that game over? We got to try to find a different spot or Uh, is it, give me some more details on that.
0: It all depends on the area I'm in. Like uh, if I go into an area and there are people hunting in there, like one of my biggest pet peeves is when I get to where I'm going and there's somebody parked there and I'm like, Oh man. But then I'm like, wow, there's a lot of woods in there. Most people hunt you know, certain areas all the time. They don't move around. So I'll go in there and I'll wander around. If the person isn't in an area that I found that I like, I'll stay in there. If they're in an area I found that I like, then I I won't go back because I don't think it's fair to them. Even though it's public land, it's not fair to them. So when I'm in there looking around, I usually look for as many scrapes as I can find in a fairly tight area, um, you know, where they're not far apart. And I look for uh, multiple runways that come together, like maybe two, three, four, five runways that all come together around those scrapes. And then I need some thick cover around there someplace. And uh, those are the places that I usually look for. If I find all of that in one place, like uh, usually when I find a place like that, I go back to the camp and I show my buddies and I mark it on my GPS just so I know where it is. So if they want to go there, and I'm not going there. I could just give the waypoint to them. They, they can go find it. Mm-hmm. And I mark on there the killing tree. <laughs> nice. Because, because usually when I find a spot, I'm almost sure we can kill a, a good buck there.
2: Yeah.
4: So how are you actually hunting a spot like that then? So I think you said that you hunt that first morning and then come back and meet up. But the rest of the hunt then, let's say you find this good spot, you set up, um, you know, do you hunt all day during the rut on these trips or do you move around throughout the day? Uh, tell me a little more about that.
0: Yeah, it depends on the day. Um, throughout my hunting career, no matter where I've been, whether it's been in the Adirondacks, the Midwest or wherever, you're during the season, you're always going to have one or two days where deer are just going bananas in the woods. Like, I mean, there's deer running all over the place. You're seeing bucks, uh, you know, one after another. A day like that, like when I come across that day, and I'll know when it is, when it happens, uh, I'll sit where I am all day. I won't move. Um, On other days, I base it on the the activity through the day. If I get to, I usually sit until 11.30 or 12. If I get to 12 and it's kind of slowing off and there's not a lot going on, I won't really go out of the woods. I'll just move to another spot. So I'm still in the woods, but I've just moved my location. So that way, I'm I'm staying active and I'm I'm just moving around, and I'm not like uh, I'm not going to wear a spot out. I'm just going to keep on moving and moving and moving. Okay. So,
4: what about trail cameras? Do you use trail cameras on these midwestern trips at all <laughs> to help you scout these public spots?
0: Oh yeah, uh, I I use them, and uh, the the thing with using them is you just have to be willing to throw a hundred bucks out the door <laughs> because people are going to going to steal them. Uh, last year we found a last year, Brian and I were walking around and, uh, I saw this really big buck. It was probably like a 160 inch deer and it was going away from us. And my father was, he didn't feel well. And he was sitting on this like ditch and the deer was going right towards that ditch. And I said to Brian, that deer's going to walk right by my father. And, uh, sure enough, it came out into this opening, but then it, it sensed something was wrong and it went the other way. So, uh. Anyhow, we went out and we met my father and, uh, he decided he was going to sit in there the next day. Well, on the way to meet him, Brian and I found this incredible scrape and there was a, there was a huge, huge rub there. I mean, it was as big as my thigh. And so we put a camera on it because it was, it was really active and I was pretty sure it was that deer, even though I wasn't positive. So I'm like, I want a picture of that deer. So we put the camera on there and then, uh, my father, we, we, we walked around my father he found a spot for the next morning so we're like okay next morning comes I dropped the two of them off there and then I continued up the road to go to another spot so I come back to get them and my and Brian says to me you're not going to believe what happened this morning I said what he says some guy came crashing out of his tree stand with his flashlight got in your father's face grabbed his grabbed him by the shirt asked him what the f are you doing in here blah 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 you're ruining my whole hunt oh. And this is an hour before daylight. So, uh, wow. and my father's like, what the heck, buddy? So my father just moves, you know, he, he moves his stand and uh, he he goes and he sits someplace else. So uh, we didn't go back in there because we saw the guy's vehicle there. I know what his vehicle looks like now. So I, I could see it there the next few days and then it cleared out. So my father decided, well, I want to go back in there and hunt again. We'll see what happens because the area was fairly large. So he goes back in there and I told him, I said, when you're down in there, it's probably like five days later. I said, when you're down in there, get that trail camera for me and bring it, you know, bring it out. And, uh, he comes out of the car. I said, you get my trail camera. He's like, uh, it's not there. Ugh. So I know who took it. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. And it's like, <laughs> you know, and then, uh, what we do is we have a term for those people and we, we just call them uh, when you pull into the parking lot and you have somebody like that, it's uh hope we don't meet angry man today. (laughs) Yeah. Because uh, you're, you're going to get a lot further ahead. If you're not angry, man. Yeah.
4: How do you deal with other hunters out there? I mean, I know some guys that like to, you know, just keep to yourself. I know some guys, when they hunt public, they talk to everyone they see, and they kind of try to say, okay, I'm hunting here. You're hunting here. I'll try to stay out of your hair. You know, how do you, how do you try to manage those interactions to deal with that best?
0: That's really uh, difficult at times. It depends on the other person, to be honest. Uh, I'm, I'm fairly quiet, but my father's like the mayor. He has to talk to everybody in town. (laughs) So, uh, he, he gets all the information we need. And I mean, I talk, but I don't, uh, I don't go out of my way to talk, mm-hmm. but if my father sees somebody, at tree stand, he'll walk right over to him, talk to him, ask him how long they've hunted there, blah, blah, blah. You know, where are you from? And, uh, he's made some really good friendships. Actually, we've made some really good friendships from doing that. Mm-hmm. But then when you get in the opposite situation, like what I just told you, like this year, when I was in Colorado, we we, uh, one day we decided to hunt someplace different and we had to drive there on an old forest road. So we pulled off this forest road I had hunted there before. And I pulled down in there and there's a guy there and it's I uh, I don't know, it's like hour and a half before daylight. And he's standing next to his vehicle, putting his socks on. So I pulled up and I said, uh, I said, where are you going to hunt today? And he's like, he starts swearing at me. He's like, you got to be effing kidding me. Are you really going down in there? I said, it's a huge area in there. I said, I just want to know where you're hunting so I can make sure I can avoid you because I'm really familiar with this mountain. Mm-hmm. And then he just teed off on me. And then finally he got in his vehicle, spun the tires in the dirt and took off. And I'm like, Jeez. and I said to, I said to Brian afterwards, cause Brian's with me, I'm like, was I in the wrong there? I mean, it's public land. He doesn't own the land, and I said I'm not going to interfere with his hunt. I'm, just, I'm going up a, an entirely different drainage than wherever he says he's going. It's not even—he's not going to hear me, not going to see me. He's going to have no idea where I am. Wow. So every person you deal with is different. It's just like uh, daily life. Like if you go to the grocery store, you know, sometimes your cashier is nice, sometimes she's not. I mean, it just depends on who the person is that you're dealing with.
4: Mm-hmm. So true. So back to your hunt, back to one of these hunts, you're targeting lots of times thick cover with some, you know, in the cover type scrape areas, lots of different runways coming together. Are you also, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, these types of areas probably are funnels of some type, but are you also keying in on like the, the traditional Midwestern type funnels too, you know, where, like the pinched timber between two fields or that kind of stuff? Or are you trying to just, is that kind of stuff the types of places where you see all these other guys in public and you're trying to get back off that? Yeah,
0: that's exactly where I see all the other people. Like uh, people like to read magazines and do exactly what it says in the (laughs) magazines, which is conducive to hunting your own land or private land. Like it's, it's funny because everybody says, if you'll, if you read public land hunting and, and you know, I'd be the first one to do this too, say, Oh, get as far away as you can. I've killed two of my biggest bucks. I could see the road and I could see people walking on the road and, uh, and everybody says, Oh, you can't kill big deer next to the road. You most certainly can if you do it the right way. And, uh, so I kind of, I don't know. I, I use different, uh, tactics, but uh, as far as that goes, like being next to the road and stuff like that, um, if you can find a place where deer cross the road, you can usually see their tracks in the dirt right there. Um, most people are going to be right next to a parking lot and what I do is we'll do like what we call a drop off. Drop me off and I'll run into the woods right there. And uh, the one deer I killed I was uh, I was about 75 yards from the road down down into a gully and I could see back up into the road like where it, uh, where the road crested where people were walking up there. And I killed a really big ten pointer, like a hundred and fifty inch ten pointer, and I could at the time that I killed it, I could see three other people that were hunting, but they were just standing on the road. Wow
4: <laughs> that's awesome,
0: yeah, so i mean you you have to be a little bit creative, and you have to be willing to take a chance so
4: yeah, yeah how aggressive are you in? other types of tactics like calling or scents or decoys or any of that kind of extra stuff do you do you fool around with anything like that on these hunts
0: uh i usually sit in the tree and i'm pretty quiet um because one thing that you're going to get on public land no matter where you go you're going to hear the guy that's over there with his deer bleat and he doesn't stop all day <laughs> like last year i was hunting a piece of public ground i i climbed in the tree i was, and it was a long walk i got in there an hour and a half before daylight And, uh, and I'm right next to a road by private property. I'm right on the border of public road, but I, or public property and private property, but I can see the road, but I couldn't come in that way because it's private. So about a half hour before it gets light, I can see somebody coming. So, and they have a flashlight. I turn my flashlight, I'm in the tree and I'm in this row of pine trees. I flash the light at them twice and there's two people. And they turn their light off and I don't know what they're doing. I can't see them. It's dark. They're probably a hundred yards away. So then I see one light come on and it starts coming right to me. The guy comes over, climbs up a tree right next to me. He's 20 yards from me, but I can't see him because it's all pine trees. He gets in the tree. It's before it's even daylight. And he starts uh, calling on his grunt call. (laughs) Then he's rolling his bleak over. I'm like, Oh my Lord. And uh, I'm, I have a little bit of a temper sometimes. Okay. (laughs) This went on until 11 o'clock. So I'm, what is it? It's like five hours. Yeah. Four or five hours. It is nonstop. It never, it never went for more than, uh, like maybe 15 minutes. So then finally I, I, and he knew I was there, but I'm like, okay, I've had enough of this. So I coughed really loud. Like, you know, basically like the shut up cough. Mm -hmm. And then he's quiet. So then like another 10 minutes, he starts doing it again. And then finally, I'm texting my father. I'm like, this guy is driving me effing crazy. <laughs> so then I couldn't handle it, and I probably shouldn't have done this, and I don't like admitting I did this, but all my uh-huh. buddies thought it was funny as hell. Finally, I couldn't yell anymore, and I yelled, shut the f up. <laughs> and... <laughs> The guy, the guy's twenty yards from me. He climbs down the tree and he kind of like tiptoes out of there, back out through the private ground. And I, I felt really bad afterwards, but I, I just couldn't handle it anymore.
4: You, you were, you were the angry man that day. Todd. Yeah, I
0: was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I decided I better not be angry man anymore. Oh, <laughs> so, uh, so then anyhow, after the guy leaves, okay, I had seen a few deer throughout the morning. They were filtering through the area. I was, I was next to the CRP field. And I could see deer out through there. Within a half hour of that guy leaving, uh, bucks just started filtering through there. And then I sat there for another hour or two and I saw nine different bucks. But I saw nothing the whole time he was doing that. It was almost like they knew that he left. Wow. Yeah. So that's my uh, story of (laughs) of (laughs) entertainment.
4: (laughs) So speaking of uh, setting up tree stands in the dark and stuff like like, like that guy was doing or climbed up next to you. What's your what's your tree stand setup, you know, that you're using for these types of hunts? Because it sounds like you're moving around a lot and you're kind of setting up on the fly. What do you use? How do you go about doing that in a way that's not messing things up?
0: I uh, What I do is no matter where I go, um, especially if it's a place I've hunted before, I'll find one place, and if, it, if you can, if it's allowable, I'll put a portable tree stand there and I'll leave it. And that's going to be the spot that I'm going to go back to, you know, fairly regularly. I'll, I'll visit it throughout the week. So I'll leave that there. So I'll always have something to go to, you know, it'll be out of the way of other people where I think is out of the way of other people. And then besides that, I carry a, uh, you know, lone wolf sit and climb tree stand. And, uh, that's what I have on my back. And I walk all over with it when I'm walking through the woods, doing the, the exploring stuff like that. It's always on my back. So after a few weeks, it gets a little bit heavy, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, it is what it is, and the only thing that really stinks is sometimes you
2: can't—you
0: have to get in a tree instead of the right tree, mm-hmm. and it can cost you. But I mean, that's the price you pay, and you're on public land, so it's—you know—you do what you can.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of those tricks is like figuring out the right balance between the right spot versus the right tree. And all that. And I mean, how often do you fine tune on a public land hunt like this where you only have a, handful, a short handful of days? Like, are you the type that you know you set your stand in this general area and it, you like the general area and you're just gonna put in your time there because eventually something will go right? Or do you tend to err on the side of you know, you hunt that first day and you see the bucks, you see a a, good, you have a good encounter, but the buck's like 70 yards away or something. Are you going to just hold it out there because eventually something will come in closer? Or do you like to move like right away to get up close to where you're seeing the action and just keep on adjusting, even if it's only like 30, 40, 50 yards?
0: Yeah. I, my father and I are a little bit different. Like last year he was in this one area. He kept seeing this really big buck. He moved, uh, three consecutive days. And I told him to leave I set the tree stand, he moved it three times. I said, Leave it alone and sit sit where it is. Okay. So then in the end he ended up getting a shot. And of course I had the bad spot and blah blah blah. (laughs) (laughs) But uh I'm I usually don't move a lot. If I if I sit someplace and deer are filtering through there and I'm and I know I'm in a good spot, like a place where a lot of things uh come together right there, I'll just wait it out. Um Because it's not like I'm hunting in a field where I can see, okay, they're coming into the field over there. They're coming through the hedgerow right there. So I'll kind of wait it out. And another thing is I don't usually stay in an area too long. I'll hunt there like one morning. If I don't see any activity there, I'm usually out of there. And then if I go there and there's a lot of activity, I might sit there the next day and I'm like, okay, I'm done there. So I'll kind of move around a lot. And then like going into it, I'll, I'll end up like, if I go back there in the future, if it was worth returning, I'll have a lot of spots to return to that I know are, are pretty good spots.
4: So that's one of the challenges I have during the rut is when I, I find a spot that like should be a good rut spot, or maybe I even know historically it's a good rut, rut spot. You know, there's something to be said for just putting your time in there. Right. And oh, yeah. eventually something will come through, but then there's always the, the alternative the other side of the coin that's if you're not in the action where it is right now you could be missing it all and so like i always battle with this internal debate of do i just stick it out here long enough and you're here long enough it will happen or do i keep moving around till i find that you know the hot spot at that time of the year how do you do, how do you make that decision yourself i mean how do you know when it's time to go versus when yeah. it's time to stay
0: that's uh that's really that's really easy for me and i always give people the same exact advice uh I go with my gut, whatever my gut tells me, that's exactly what I do. Hmm. And sometimes it go, it's against what my mind tells me. Like my mind tells me, like what you just said, this is a good rut spot, I really need to stick it out. Blah, blah. But my gut says, I can kill a deer over on that creek crossing. Something inside me tells me that's the spot to go. I never second guess it, that's where I'm going.
2: Hmm.
0: So it's, uh, I, it's like I said earlier, I don't overanalyze my gut tells me to do this and that's exactly what i'm going to do
4: i found myself slowly getting to that point a little more i think it's something that comes with experience i imagine for more and more people and i think as i get more and more experienced i start i i'm beginning to have more faith in my gut yeah and to your point i think when you start going that route I think it does two things. One, your gut is probably, right, that that quote-unquote gut instinct. It's just the accumulation of years and years and years of all this experience kind of informing you subconsciously of, you know, something. But then I also think, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but when you go with a gut decision, you will inherently have more confidence in what you're doing then because if you followed your gut and you're sitting in the spot where your gut told you you should be you're going to feel more confident about that hunt and i think when you're more confident in where you're sitting and hunt you're more alert you're more ready to take advantage of whatever might actually happen and so i think i don't know maybe it's a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes where because you believe in it because you trusted your gut you actually can make something good happen maybe just maybe just like two percent better chance but i don't know maybe sometimes that's all it takes (laughs)
0: That's exactly it. Like, uh, when, when my gut tells me to do something, I'm like, I'm, I don't know, I might be like a freak of nature, but like everything inside me tells me this is the morning. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And if I go into the woods and I'm like, eh, I should have sat over there. As soon as that thought comes in my head, I'll get out of the tree stand. I don't care if it's been daylight for a half hour and I'll go to that other spot. Like I don't, I don't waste any time. Like as soon as something tells me you shouldn't be here, I go to the other place.
4: And that's something I think a lot of people struggle with. I think especially on these short trips like that, it's so easy to stay put, right? I mean, it's, that's the easy, the easy out, but I got to believe that when you, I mean, and I've, every year I'm in a similar situation, but when you only have seven days or five days or 10 days or whatever to get it done, Right. I mean, you can't.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> you
4: can't miss those opportunities. You have to go for it.
0: Yeah, it's uh, I mean, you're going to come up empty handed now and then. But uh I mean, if you keep gaining experience, then you're going to learn the places to avoid and the places to go. And uh, like years and years of experience, like I can look at something and say, "Eh, I don't know about that. And then I put my father there. That's the just in case spot, just in case he might see something there. Mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> then I go to the good spot. So. <laughs> oh, Dad gets Garhold. <laughs> Man, uh, teaches now, you
4: how to hunt, and that's what he gets.
0: <laughs> no, it's funny, though. We'll share stands. Like One year, he sat in this stand for uh, five straight days. There was, there, were a big buck, there was a big buck chasing a doe on the opposite ridge, and he could see it, but it would never come down across the ridge over onto his side, and it was over there every day, and he didn't want to move over to that other side. And so finally, he said to me, he says, you come over and sit in my stand and I'm going to go down to the bottom of the Hill. And that thing's going to come off there someplace. So I'm like, oh, okay. And I'd been hunting someplace else. I went over there. I climbed up, sat in his stand. It's uh daylight. It got daylight. I'm there for a half hour. And uh, at that point I shot the biggest buck that either one of us had ever shot. So wow. whenever he looks at it, he says, yeah, that's my deer. <laughs> I said, yeah, but I shot it.
4: Oh <laughs> man. That's how it goes sometimes. <laughs> So, so we've got to wrap, wrap things up, Todd, but I want to get one final thought from you. I guess, sure. if you could offer one final piece of advice or one final concept that someone needs to wrap their head around that we haven't talked yet about when it comes to hunting this type of scenario, what would that final wisdom be?
0: <laughs> oh, shoot. I have like a zillion things. Um...
4: You could pick any of the zillion
0: I'll, I'll probably get crucified for this, but I'm going to tell you, don't pay attention to the wind
2: Hmm.
0: and don't listen to all the moon stuff. If you have vacation and you didn't know it when you picked it and it's during the full moon, I've killed just as many deer in the full moon or half moon, uh, as I have any other time. Um, I think a lot of, uh, public hunting land, um, deer, deer are used to, you know, surviving they have to survive but at the same time i think a lot of public land has less pressure than private land as long as you find the right pieces of public land and what i mean by the wind the wind thing is if you're hunting in in places where you know there are they're wooded like big mountains like where I hunt adirondacks or in the midwest where i look for the big timbered patches uh when you set up like there might be those four or five runways i was talking about when you set up there, I mean, you might have an idea where you think the deer are coming from, but most people take their vacation during the rut and the deer tend to run wild then, mm-hmm. and they'll come from every direction in the woods. So don't get up in the morning and say, oh, I just, that's a really good spot, but I just can't hunt there because of the wind. Because the wind does funny things. Um I've been in a stand where I knew the wind was bad, like what the wind said on the, on the weather app, and I'm like, oh, bad wind, bad wind, because it's blowing up into that field. I'm on the edge of the field. But at the same time, I had hunted it enough to know that when the wind was in that direction, it blew up and over the field. So too many people, when they look at the wind report, they think they know exactly what the wind is going to do, which they do, but they don't know exactly how that wind reacts in the area that they hunt. Mm -hmm. So, I mean... Pay attention, but don't let that ruin your hunt.
2: Right.
4: I think there's something to be said to, you know, what you were just saying, like when you have such a short time span to hunt this area, sometimes you do have to push all the chips in on the right spot. If everything else is right, but the wind's a little wrong, you know, it's either you don't hunt the good spot and you never know, or you do throw a Hail Mary and, you know, you're never going to catch that touchdown if you don't throw the Hail Mary once in a while.
0: <laughs> exactly.
4: So that's a very, very interesting thought there and makes a lot of sense. People can
0: crucify me now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm sure,
4: I'm sure you'll, uh, I'm sure you'll be all right, Todd. So this has been super, this has been super interesting. I, I enjoy these types of talks where it's, it's something that's applicable in lots of different situations. It sounds like a lot of things you're doing, they can work all over the country, whether you be in Indiana or Kansas or Pennsylvania or Vermont or Michigan, um, I think there's something we can all take away from this. So so thank you, Todd. And if anyone listening wants to check out your books or anything else you've got going on, is there anywhere they can find that online?
0: Uh, sure. I have a couple different websites. Uh, my my main website is just my name. It's uh, toddmead.com. Then I have another website. It's called adktrailcam.com, which is uh, it's basically a bunch of trail cam pictures from the Adirondacks. <laughs> and uh you can find me on facebook i'm on there it's just my regular name i i don't know what my profile picture is right now it might be an elk or something on there (laughs) since there are a number of me in the united states i
4: guess (laughs) (laughs) you're probably the only Todd Meade standing in the mountains though
0: (laughs) yeah something like that i hope i am
4: (laughs) (laughs) awesome well todd thank you so much for joining us uh, and for sharing all this insight and expertise and um as we kind of alluded to earlier two people should look for um a little bit more from you in some upcoming uh issues of the magazine right
0: uh yeah hopefully <laughs> yeah hopefully Bar- the author made me look good
4: <laughs> <laughs> that guy's a real piece of work from what i understand <laughs> barring some uh, unfortunate surprise i think uh there'll be a, an interesting story written by me featuring some cool stuff from you and some other guys so keep an eye out for that in a future issue of outdoor life and uh, with that said, Todd, I guess good luck the rest of the season, and, uh, and please stay in touch.
0: All right. Thanks a lot, and uh, good luck to you and your friends.
4: Thank you. And with that, we will wrap this one up. But before we go, we need to thank our partners who have helped make this podcast possible. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Yeti Coolers, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Like I mentioned last week, give these guys a shout if you appreciate them helping out with this podcast. Or if you end up trying some of their stuff out, let us know. We'd love to hear about your experiences. And with all that said, thank you all for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Todd. Good luck in the woods. And as always, stay wired to hunt. at your local auto parts store, or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.